0: can. Um, we're now going to continue our series in Romans. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Romans. We'll be in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, we've put some under the chairs. We, we put those Bibles under the chairs because we want to get you used to handling reading, looking at Bibles. So if you don't have one at home, you can take that home. If you don't have one with you today, maybe you have one at home and you just didn't bring it, we encourage you to grab that. We'll be on page 943 in that Bible. 943 in that Bible, it's Romans chapter seven. And uh, I was talking to a friend the other day who had a really expensive ticket. He was really frustrated about it. It was like 300, $350 or something. Um, Really frustrated. And you know there are different ways that you can get out of a ticket, right? You can do driver's education, but you still have to pay some things. You still have to go see the judge. You can do deferred adjudication. There's different things like that that you can do. Um, Another thing that could happen is you owe a ticket is perhaps before you pay the ticket, you might get hit by a bus and die, right? And then you wouldn't have to pay the ticket. Now, I don't recommend that as a course of action. If you are low on funds and you have an expensive ticket, don't take drastic action like that. Come talk to me if you need the money. But um, it's an example that Paul is gonna use that when you're dead, you don't owe anything to the law anymore. As a matter of fact, I heard Sinclair Ferguson, a Scottish preacher say that when they execute someone for a crime in Scotland... They would say, on this day, so and so was justified. That means like their record was made clean, right? Because they're dead, they're done. And so Paul's going to use that illustration here in the text. Today, we're calling it bound to grace, because I'm trying to state things positively here. But Paul is negatively saying, you are not bound any longer to sin and to the law. You're no longer bound. To those things, And remember, just by way of review, Paul is continually mixing together being under law with being under sin. And he's saying the option to those two lifestyles is being bound to grace. Because when you're bound to the law, it ends up in sin. Because there's two ways you can go. You can either be a religious person that lies and pretends that you're keeping the law, or you can be a rebellious person that just throws up your hands and says, forget the law. But either way, if you're under law, that results in living a life being under sin, being condemned. And he's saying here, you died. You died to the law with Christ. Christ died on the cross for your sins. You've now risen to new life. And so now there is a new power at work within you. Let's look at the text, Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. Romans 7, 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now I'll give an illustration, verse two. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has raised, who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So there's some, some complex stuff here. I, th- I think it's understandable. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to pray. We're going to ask the Lord to meet us here because we believe that the teaching of God's word is a supernatural act. It requires his spirit to open our eyes. So I'm going to pray and ask God to meet us in the teaching today. God, we pray that you would come and you would be among us, that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to hear and to perceive uh, what you're saying in your word, and we pray that it, it would not just cause understanding and heart change, but it would cause life change as we fall more deeply in love with you, that that would make us the kind of people that love others. God, we, we pray that you would bind us to your grace, to your kindness, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first uh, case that Paul begins to make is what can be called an axiom or a principle, and that's the idea that grace is actually legal. And we have this misunderstanding. I'm calling it the law of grace here. We have this misunderstanding sometimes that grace is somehow utterly opposite and different from the law in the sense of the law doesn't matter, we don't care about the law, we don't care about right and wrong. And Paul's saying, no, it's, it's actually a legal process here that has been fulfilled. Jesus has not only fulfilled the law and then died to the law, he's now rose to new life, and so grace is not like something that is less than the law, grace is actually more than the law. Does that make sense? And so what happens sometimes in certain Christian circles, it's sometimes called antinomianism, in certain Christian circles, people say, well, we see this kind of grace versus law thing and we just read it at a surface level and we think that that means God doesn't care how we live. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, he keeps saying, no, that's not the point. Grace actually makes you fulfill the law. Grace actually makes you holy in a way that the law never could. Because again, when you face the law and all the commands and all the requirements that the law puts on you, you either have to lie and become a religious hypocrite or you have to throw it out the window. Either way, it results in sin because we don't have the power to fulfill the law in our own self. But what grace does is it changes us from the inside out. And so Paul starts here with the axiom, the principle that if you die, you don't owe anything to the law anymore. Verse one again Do you not know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? And aside here, some commentators might say, well, he must be talking to Jews here because he says, I'm speaking to people that know the law. Um, Really, when you look at the whole book of Romans, he's probably talking to a mixed church of Jewish and uh, non-Jewish Christians. And in that day, especially in the first century Rome, most of the early Gentile converts to Christianity were guys that were already interested, people that were already interested in Judaism. So they had a lot of familiarity with the law. But either way, the the principle is a general principle that everybody would know. It's just a common sense sort of principle. If you're dead, you're you're free from that law, right? It's just a general principle, and he's clarifying this, that you no longer have to uh, be obligated to it any longer because you died. Remember in chapter six, a few weeks ago, it showed us that if you have faith in Christ, you are in union with Christ. Everything that Christ has is yours. You belong to him. You're identified with him. You're hidden in him. So the idea is that the old you spiritually died with Christ. The old you, the old me, the lawbreaker, died with Christ on the cross. When Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, by our union with Christ, by being spiritually bound to him by faith, we paid that penalty in Christ because he paid the penalty for us. So we don't owe anything any longer. We're no longer obligated to the law. He took that penalty for us and he gives us his resurrection power. And so the law of grace is that we are now under this new system, but it's legal. It's not less than law, it's more than law. It's something bigger and more beautiful. And now he uses an illustration to explain the, the principle. It's a big axiom, a big principle here. If, if you're dead, you don't know anything of the law. And he says, well, look at marriage. Marriage is an illustration of that. Verse two, I have a picture here of a woman crying at a funeral. If, if you lose your husband, you are now, under most laws in the world, free to remarry. Um, commentators actually make the case that he is talking specifically about Jewish law here because under Roman law, you had to wait a year. Before you remarried. I guess that was to discourage women from offing their husbands or something. I'm not sure exactly why that was in Roman first century law. Uh, but there was this one year waiting period in the Roman law. So in the Jewish law, it was just kind of, just kind of common sense. Yeah, if, if you die, uh, or if your husband dies, or if you die, the spouse is no longer bound to the other one, right? It, it's a do it's over, a, a starting over period. He says it this way in verse 2 For a married woman is bound by law to a husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So he's clarifying here this law that the death frees you from blame. And I just want to say as an aside here that Paul is not really trying to give us a deep, intense teaching on marriage Christians kind of disagree on this, on what are the different uh, exceptions with marriage and divorce, right? Jesus was really clear that the point, the point is to be bound to each other till death. That's the point. But then there's exceptions sometimes implied and when you read 1 Corinthians 7, there seems to be exceptions that Paul explains there and there seems to be exceptions in Matthew 19 with adultery and um, the leaving of an unbelieving spouse and things like that. And so the point here is Paul's not really going on a tangent about, okay, here are all the rules about marriage, He's just, he's just trying to use this illustration of the point here is that by death, you're no longer bound, and you died. That's the point, right? We can have another discussion on marriage and divorce. We can go to a bunch of other texts for that. But here's a, here's a point that everybody agrees on. No matter what you think about marriage and divorce, you all agree that when someone's died, you're no longer bound. That's just universal principle, universal axiom, and he's saying, you died. You're no longer bound to your former lover sin. You're no longer bound. Imagine you had a, a really abusive spouse. Imagine you had a spouse that made your, your life miserable, that, that just made life horrible. And that spouse dies, and you're free, and you remarry someone. You remarry someone who is so kind and so gracious and so good to you. But do you think you would ever associate some of the new spouse's behavior with the old spouse, the memories that you have? Do you think you ever might cringe when a certain tone of voice rises up in that person? Because you've got memories and you've got patterns that are set from the lover that you had before, and I think the same thing happens with our, our binding ourselves under sin and under law. Sometimes we forget that we are now bound to someone new in Christ. We're no longer bound to sin, sin that mistreated us, the law that could only point out what was wrong in our life, but not actually love us and give us. Grace. There's a cool little aside from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe story on how death uh, is this kind of start over the death and rebirth picture. I don't know if any of y'all ever heard of C.S. Lewis or the, the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It was made into a movie, so a lot of people saw the movie a few years ago. But in the story, there are these characters. It's like a fantasy allegory type of story. And so there's this lion who represents Jesus in an allegory sort of way. He's this big, powerful hero. And he saves the day. And there's this witch that uh, is supposed to symbolize the powers of evil. And this one kid in the story, Edmund, he betrays his brothers and sisters. And because he's a traitor, he is now bound to the white witch, right? His life is forfeit. But what happens? Well, Aslan dies in the place of Edmund. And through that death, Aslan, the lion, explains there's this deeper magic that evil didn't even know about. Right, everybody knows about the law that, hey, because of your evil, you're bound to evil, but there's this deeper magic of this death and rebirth that when Aslan took the place of Edmund and died for him, Aslan says there's this deeper magic still that the white witch didn't even know about, that now he is set free, because I have taken his place and broken that stone table on which he was to be sacrificed. Well, it's a picture, a purposeful picture, that's supposed to point us to Jesus that there's this deeper reality that's not less than the law, but it's better than the law. Jesus fulfilled the law for you, and he died, and he's risen again, and now you have that new resurrection life at work in you. And Paul is calling us to believe that. Paul is calling us to no longer feel an allegiance to our old master. Last week, it was the slavery illustration. This week, it's a marriage illustration. The point is you're no longer bound to sin. You're no longer bound to the law. You're now bound to Jesus who loves you, and that, that changes us. Another cross-reference that shows the picture of death and rebirth changing things with this, this binding of covenant is Hebrews 9, 16 through 18. So if you're kind of wanting to study this more, this is a kind of a complicated topic, and there's a lot of other old covenant, new covenant, death, rebirth Uh, references throughout the scriptures. That's another one that's a good one to look up. Hebrews 9, 16 through 18 shows us that the new covenant is activated through death. It always requires death to enact a new covenant. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And by faith, we died with Jesus on the cross. So here's, here's the point. You don't owe sin anything. You don't owe the law anything. The law points out where you failed. But Jesus says, I love you, now go live a righteous life. So you're no longer bound to that condemnation. The way Paul's gonna say it in a few more verses in Romans 8, one is there's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is hard for us to wrap our minds around, right? Because we keep going back to, well, if I'm free and forgiven, doesn't that mean I'm just gonna go live wild and sin? And Paul keeps saying, no. If you really see how good Jesus is to you, You're going to want to follow him. That's the law of grace. It changes everything. And so the next thing that we're going to see is how that that binds us to Jesus. And so the way I'm going to explain it is with this word jealousy. The jealousy of grace. We are bound to Jesus. And Jesus is a lover who jealously and possessively loves us and wants what's best for us. Now, this can be a hard word for us, and I'm purposefully pushing you, right? I'm using a hard word because in our culture, we think of jealousy as sinful jealousy. And that's the most, that's like the first definition we think of, right? A jealous lover is someone who's all been out of shape and crazy. You know, you went to the store and your lover goes crazy. You shouldn't go to the store without me. You know, like people that are unhinged. But jealousy is used regularly of God, that God is rightfully jealous of us, of our love, that we would be faithful to him. Jealous is the rightful desire to have what is yours. And we belong to God. We are bound to him. He possesses us. Look, look at the way it's described in verse four. It says it this way, verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, through that um, union with Christ that was talked about in chapter six. You died with him so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. You died to Christ, and now you belong to Christ in his resurrection power. You are now bound to him. He possesses you. You belong to him. One of the ways that this is described in uh, Exodus 34, Exodus 34:14 34, says it this way. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So there's a right kind of jealousy and a wrong kind of jealousy. There's a you're just a crazy person kind of jealousy that we see often in relationships because we're sinners and we're crazy often, right? But there's a right kind of jealousy. Your spouse belongs to you. You should covet your spouse's affection and attention and loyalty because they belong to you, because you possess them. I was talking about this with a friend the other day. When we have a fight, it's easy when we're having a fight in marriage to come across as if we're saying, you're bad, I don't approve of you. And I would say a good strategy based on the rightness of jealousy is to say, you belong to me and so I jealously desire your faithfulness and loyalty. And so making that the point, right? Because I love you, because I desire your affection, because I desire your faithfulness. That, that is a right and good foundation for a good healthy fight, right? So kind of changing your tactic when you're having that discussion we might say instead of fight. So jealousy is not always a bad thing. James 4 talks about this. It says that the spirit in us yearns, or God's spirit yearns for us. It's translated in different ways, but pretty much every time you translate it, no matter how you translate it, the idea is that there's this jealousy that God has for us, and the Holy Spirit in us should have for our faithfulness to God. So there's pictures of this. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this picture of um, adultery being the same thing as idolatry. So idolatry is when you have an idol, a false god, that's not the real god, that can't actually take care of you, and you're in love with this false savior that can't really fulfill your needs, that can't really take care of you, and God often says that is adultery. Adultery is the word for being unfaithful to our spouse, and so God repeatedly says that when we run after other gods, when you start to think that education is or other relationships, or the bottle, or pleasure, or whatever it is can save you, God says that spiritual adultery, that spiritual unfaithfulness in your spiritual marriage to Jesus. Now, I know, guys, this can be confusing if you're like, wait, I don't, I don't want to be the woman in this relationship, right? And I can, can mess with your head. I'll just say, get over it. Okay, you'll be fine. There's plenty of other male analogies, right? Women have to put up with all the male analogies throughout Scripture. This is just one of the very few where we're like, okay, I've, I have to be the woman. He's the man. Okay. Just don't worry about it too much. There's a faithfulness principle here, okay? You belong to Jesus. And he's the only one that can love you well. He's the only one that can take care of you. He's the only one that can meet your needs. He's the only lover that is truly faithful, that is the hero that you've been looking for. So Paul says, remember, you're you're bound to him. You're not bound to the law anymore. And again, if you want to be back into the law, there's only two directions that can go. One direction is I'm a failure, so forget it. I hate the law. Or lie and be a religious Bible belt person that says, yeah, I keep the law. I'm a good person. God owes me. Because I keep the law perfectly. And you know where that went with the Pharisees. Jesus repeatedly said to the Pharisees, no, you're not actually keeping the law. You're just acting like it. You're just pretending. So James says that God is jealous, and there are these other Old Testament passages I wanted to point out as well that talk about the spiritual adultery being a version of idolatry. So I'm just gonna throw out some references for those of you that like to look up other references. Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 3, Hosea 2, Ezekiel 16. And and those are pretty fierce and, and pretty scary passages in the Old Testament that set up that that picture of God's fierce, jealous love for us. And so I thought it might be helpful to switch images for you because this might be too intense, right? So if you want to think about passionate devotion and jealousy, maybe another image that would be helpful is ice cream, okay? Ice cream. There was a time in my life when I was very jealous of my food, right? And if someone made a move towards my plate, they might get stabbed with a fork, right? Or they might get like elbowed in the face, right? Because I've always been skinny and I've always been hungry. It's just how God made me. I'm just always hungry. And, you know, my friends in high school would try to steal my food. And so we were always having to fight for our plate, right? Now, how do you think that went over when I got married? My, my sweet <laughs> wife is like, oh, you know, I don't Now I never actually stabbed her, right? But she could see that like argh, rising up within me. I had to learn to share. Well, well, some of you have things in your life that you are passionately devoted to, right? It, it might be ice cream. I, I don't know what it is for you. It, it has your devotion. It has your jealousy. You're like, that belongs to me. I must have it. I'm going to push everything else out of the way. And in our spiritual life, really the, the place that should most exhibit that is our relationship with Jesus. It doesn't mean you're not passionate about anything else. It just means Jesus should be the thing you're most passionate for, right? So I'm not saying don't love ice cream. Love ice cream, ice cream's great. But but be most passionate, most jealous for Jesus. I've, I've quoted this illustration many times, but an old Puritan preached a sermon and the name of the sermon was The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. His name's Thomas Chalmers, Um, It's a great, long, hard-to-understand sermon, but I'll just give you a summary of it, okay? The summary is that we have this new affection, and it's Jesus. And we love Jesus, and we see Jesus is so beautiful that that affection has an expulsive power that drives out, that expels the other affections in our heart. So that now we love him more than anything else, and that faithfulness, that jealousy that we have for Jesus, and Jesus has for us is what transforms us and what makes us into the people that begin to look like law keepers, that begin to actually love God and love others. We begin to live it out because we now are so in love with Jesus. Again, that's not being bound to law, it's being bound to Jesus who says you're forgiven, you're free, now go live like it. Now go love others because you are loved. So there's this power with the possessiveness and the jealousy of God's grace in our life. How do we, how do we stoke that affection in our hearts? I would ask you to, to pray. Say, God, help me see ways that I can stir that up more, that I can be more affectionate for you, that I can love you more. Classically, Christians talk about something called the means of grace, which means kind of like you know the conduits of God's grace in our life. There are certain ways that God says, you know, do this and you'll, you'll get more grace. You'll see more of me. You'll taste more of me. One of the keys is, is prayer, right? Everybody agrees. If, if you want to be more affectionate for Jesus, pray that he would stir up those affections in your heart. Other things we talk about are our worship. As we gather together to sing to Jesus, our hearts begin to change. As we say we feel a certain way, just the way God's wired us, our, our feelings actually begin to move to align with what we're saying we feel. And it's a, it's a good discipline and practice to say, I love you, Lord, even as maybe you're feeling it at 50%, God's helping to stir those affections in your heart. As we share in communion together to taste and to have that physical reality of Jesus giving himself for us, as we read the scriptures for ourselves or study the Bible with other people, we see Jesus in the scriptures. He, he's, he can't help but jump out of the scriptures to us as we see him as the redeemer and as the hope that fulfills every promise throughout the bible. These are different ways to, to stir up that affection for Jesus, to see his jealousy for you, that he loves you, that he passionately has bound himself to you, and that helps us to be more passionately bound to Jesus in return. Seeing the jealousy as for us helps us to be jealous for him as well. The last thing I want us to see is that this then all results in fruitfulness. This passion In a relationship results in fruitfulness. And not to get too weird, but just the way God designed marriage, marriage, when functioning properly, all things being equal, results in fruitfulness. I know for some of you, there's the heartbreak of not being able to have biological children. What's really cool is that there's a promise in the Old Testament that says, for those of you that that are not physically fruitful, the promise of the new covenant is that you will be fruitful. There's this promise made... Uh, to women who are barren and men who can't reproduce, in Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 56. It says, All those who have never been fruitful before in the new covenant, you will all be fruitful. There will be a spiritual fruitfulness. Because of what Jesus did for you, life will just overflow from you. You will impact people's lives in such a way that when you come in contact with other people, you will encourage them and build them up and they will see the hope of the gospel that you have in their lives and that'll overflow to them and there will be a fruitfulness that begins to pop up all all around you and so remember that the picture of physical marriage and biological fruitfulness is secondary to the spiritual reality of what god does for us really important thing to remember whether you're single or married is to remember that it's just an allegory it's just a picture. It's not about you. If, if you're lonely and wishing you could be married, that that would solve all your problems. First of all, talk to your married friends, and they'll tell you it won't solve all your problems, right? <laughs> but also, if, if you're married, we, we often think it's about us. It's not about us. Our marriage is not about us. It's about a picture that God is painting in the world. He, he makes that really clear in Ephesians 5. It, it's not that God walked into our world, and he's like, I'm really looking for a good illustration, to show people that I love them. Hey, they've come up with this marriage thing. I'll use that, right? That is completely backwards. God already had perfect love within himself, and that perfect love within himself in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, overflows into creation. He says, I'm going to make a world and love a world because I already have love within myself. So the love is there from the beginning. And God creates marriage and family and all these other things as as a drama for us to play out, to point us back to him. His love comes first. So your marriage is not about you, and I think this helps us in our marriage. It's not about us being happy and living the dream. It's about us showing the world God's love for the world, God's love for his church. That's the purpose of marriage, is to demonstrate that reality. And that's the purpose of physical fruitfulness as well, is to point to the spiritual fruitfulness that we should all be involved in. let me go back to the text. Verse four, the end of verse four, he talks about this fruitfulness. He says at the end of verse four, you belong to another, to Jesus, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. That's the purpose of belonging to Jesus who rose from the dead. So we live in a world of death and brokenness and pain. And we live in this world of death and brokenness and pain for the purpose of belonging to Jesus, the resurrected one, and displaying his resurrection power to the world. Fruitfulness. And I think fruitfulness looks like two things. It looks like the fruitfulness I already talked about of you impacting other people, but it also looks like a fruitfulness in your own life as well, right? You bear fruit of of godly character. You bear the fruit of love. Let's flip over to Galatians, which is the classic text on the fruitfulness of character in our life. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, I don't know what page that is in the black Bibles, but it looks like about 20 or 30 pages over to the right, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and I have a picture here of fruit just to set the mood, there we go, beautiful peaches in the sunlight, Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says, the fruit of the Spirit, Jesus is Spirit at work in your life, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So Jesus says, if the spirit is at work in your life, fruitfulness will result. And here are these character traits of fruitfulness. Things like love and joy and peace and patience. Some of you here this morning are still considering the claims of Christ. You're trying to consider, is, is this real? Is he worth it? What can this do for me? And one of the questions I would ask you is, are you displaying these kinds of fruits or this kind of fruit in your life? Do you already now, with whatever Savior you're trusting in, whether it's your own intelligence or science or relationships or education or your job, whatever Savior you're trusting in now, does that Savior bring you love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, self-control? Are those things growing In your life, is that the kind of fruit that's being displayed in your life? Paul says that we can have the fruit of death and shame and sin, or we can have this kind of fruit—the fruitfulness that God has made us for. Verse five. So back in Romans now, Romans seven five, he says, "For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death." And so being bound to sin, being bound to the law, resulted in the fruit of death. Our passions, our lusts, we were out of control. It It wasn't really meeting our need, but we kept wanting more, thinking it would meet our need, but it was never enough, and it just results in death. It results in addiction. It results in brokenness, our members producing sin and producing death. Verse six says, but now we are released from that law. We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So the new covenant is different than the Old Covenant. Paul repeatedly contrasts these and he's not here using the term Old Covenant, New Covenant, but he uses that language in Second Corinthians three, six, in Hebrews eight and nine, the language is used of Old Covenant, New Covenant. Jesus, when he initiates the Lord's Supper, talks about the new covenant initiated through his blood. I referenced earlier Hebrews 9.16 that says that a new covenant always has to have a death to inaugurate that. So there was this old covenant we were under, which was a national covenant. The Mosaic Code, what Moses introduced through the law, was a national covenant that said, by the written code, Paul says here, it says, do what's right and things will go well for you. And what's the problem with that? Us, right? The problem is not with the instruction of the Lord. God's law is perfect and good and beautiful. Read Psalm 119. It's awesome. If we were to live it out, it would transform our lives, right? The problem is with us. It's not with his commands. His commands are good and beautiful. The problem is us, our sin. And Hebrews 8 makes that really, really explicit. Hebrews 8 says the problem wasn't with the covenant. The problem was with the people. And so now there's this new covenant initiated by Jesus. And how is that new covenant different? Well, it is God actually at work supernaturally in your life. God said, okay, having the Ten Commandments on stone over here is not going to work. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to carve the commandments on your heart. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to take your sin on the cross. I'm going to rise to new life, and I'm going to give you supernatural resurrection power so that you will begin to walk in newness of life. That's the new covenant. He doesn't change his requirements. He, He changes how they're met. Right? Before it was, meet my requirements and everything will be fine. Now it's, I've met the requirements for you. I've taken care of it for you. And again, repeatedly, these chapters, Paul's saying, does that mean we don't care? No, that binds us in love to him. That makes us overwhelmed, his grace. We, we could never run to another again. The expulsive power of this new affection drives out our other affections and we fall more deeply in love with Jesus. So what does this look like to bear fruit? I read Galatians 5, through 23. Pray that God would produce that fruit in your life by his spirit. Don't try to trick yourself. Don't try to go buy plastic fruit and glue it on your tree, right? That's just stupid. It should grow naturally in your life. And that's what Paul is saying. There's a written code and then there's the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Now in gardening, we know, and I talked about this last week, there's hard work to do. You've got to plant, you've got to water. And Paul uses this imagery in 1 Corinthians 1. He talks about his ministry, talks about this other guy named Apollos, and they both did ministry, and he says, one of us planted, one of us watered, but you know what? God made it grow. God makes things grow. And if you've ever grown anything, you know that. You work, you sweat, you put in hours, you plant, you water, but God makes it grow. Paul says in that passage in 1 Corinthians 1, neither one of us is anything because God is the one really doing it. So God is calling on you to work. God is calling on you to try. God is calling you to pursue him, but I think the primary work is prayer. The primary work is recognizing, God, you're the one that does this by your spirit in my life, whether it's character being formed in my life, that kind of fruitfulness, or it's me impacting other people by sowing seeds of hope in their life, by encouraging them in the gospel, by telling them more about this Jesus that has changed my life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and in Galatians 5, in both places, it's the Spirit that's doing it. It's God that's doing the work. It's God that's making you fruitful. So pray and ask God to change you. Ask him, God, what, what new things do you want evidence in my life? How can you help me understand how you want me to change. Will you make that so for your glory? So we're bound to grace. We're bound to grace because he's the savior that can actually save us. He's the one that actually loves us. His grace is what changes us from the inside out. Old covenant was outside in and it didn't work because of us. New covenant works because it's God doing the work from within us, changing our heart, changing our affections. Paul is going to this, uh, this kind of, height in Romans 8 1 where he'll finish all of this argumentation that he's been going through in chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and he's going to come to this place in, in Romans 8 where he says there's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus he loves you come back to the gospel recognize that Jesus fulfilled the law for you grace is not less than the law grace is more Jesus took care of it for you so that you can love him and love others and I want to finish with these words from Philippians 1.6. Paul says, I am confident that the God who started this work in your life will bring it to completion. I know if you're like me, you get discouraged when you fall back to old habits of feeling like you're bound to your old master, of cringing, of being worried about your old master's law, your old master's sin. But you need to continue to remind yourself, God is going to finish what he started. He loves you. He gave himself for you. He will continue to transform your life. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in worship together. God, thank you that you loved us so much that you gave us Jesus. We thank you that he is at work in our life. And God, we, we confess our own, our own doubts, our own struggles. We ask, we pray that your spirit would change us that you would bind us more and more to your grace, that we would see, even this week, God, even this afternoon, that we would see evidences of your grace at work in our lives, in the lives of those around us. We thank you for giving yourself for us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like someone to pray with you after the